Welcome to St. Alphonsus Wellcast, the podcast where we explore the many facets of health and well-being. This podcast is brought to you by St. Alphonsus Corporate Health and Well-Being and a generous grant from the St. Alphonsus Foundation. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the St. Alphonsus Wellcast. My name is Kim Cleveland. I'm a family nurse practitioner here at St. Alphonsus in the Department of Corporate Health and Wellbeing. And today I'm super excited. We have a very special guest on, Dr. Jeff Bank. Dr. Jeff Bank is a gastroenterologist with the Digestive Health Clinic here in Boise, Idaho. And to give you some background, he grew up in Cody, Wyoming and attended Carroll College in Helena, Montana for his undergraduate education, and then went on to attend medical school at the University of Washington. He then completed both his internal medicine residency and his gastroenterology fellowship at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, where he served as the chief fellow. He is now board certified in internal medicine and gastroenterology, and he is a member of the American Gastroenterology Association, the American College of Gastroenterology, the American Society of Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, which sounds all exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) He has a very special interest in inflammatory bowel disease, and we are so excited to have him on today to talk a little bit more about the field of gastroenterology and how it may apply to you. As a note, we also have Candy Zapia on the line, who will be chiming in from time to time with her own questions and comments, and we're happy to have her as well. Thank you. Happy to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Thank you so much for coming, Jeff. No problem. Happy to be here. Good. So the field of medicine is so broad and there are so many areas you can choose to specialize in as a physician. Can you tell me a little bit more about what made you choose gastroenterology? Yes. So I was originally interested in medicine, really starting kind of medicine and the sciences starting in middle school and uh, knew that I kind of in high school wanted to pursue medicine, which is part of the reason I went to to Carroll College. And originally what I got interested uh, was ophthalmology um, because I had an interest in photography and I still still enjoy photography. And then uh, as an undergrad well, really, when I was a, a sophomore, I started to develop uh, GI symptoms. I was having uh, bloody diarrhea and weight loss and joint pain and actually uh, had a colonoscopy the day after my 21st birthday, so quite a nice present. And uh, and then I was actually, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And so uh, through my experience of having really multiple gastroenterologists care for me now, roughly eight, I mean, kind of through all my medical training and traveling and, and, and things that uh, I got interested in, in GI and kind of pivoted to, to that. And then uh, shadowing GI docs, I really uh, enjoyed the, the field, really the, the breadth of um, of it, as well as the procedural aspect, and then the ability to positively impact patients' quality of lives, and then decided, hey, you know, I, I have this disease. I really want to give back to to other patients like like myself, and and so that's really how I got interested in it. So I guess you can say that I, I've been on kind of both sides of the of the fence uh, with with medicine, both both as a, a patient and a uh, physician, and I I, don't know, I, I, I love it so. Is that something you share with your patients too? Do you let them know you have Crohn's? I the the patients with IBD who I see in in clinic, I share that with some or most of them. It's not it's not with with every patient that I that, that I do that, but it's say if uh, a patient is 
say hesitant to start a therapy for their their inflammatory bowel disease. I, I say, you know, I've I've been through uh, some of this my myself and struggled with the thought of you know this is a lifelong disease. I have to be on medication on a on a lifelong long term uh, basis. And so I've kind of thought about this not just from the physician side of you know I need to treat a disease, but also the patient side of accepting being on a, a therapy that suppresses your immune system and um, needs regular monitoring. And uh, so I, I provide usually will kind of throw that uh, or offer that that to the to, to the patient. But I try not to make the visit about about myself because ultimately right. they're, they're coming to 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 see me and I'm trying to take care of, of them and make a, a positive impact on, on their life. Yeah, I mean, I think finding that balance is so important mm-hmm. as a provider, but just having been a patient, all of us have been a patient at some point, knowing that the person that's treating you is a human and, and also has shared in some of that is something that I think probably could be really valuable for your patients. And they're super lucky to have that perspective from I, you. I, well, I, I like to be able to, to offer it, and especially those those younger patients who, you know, are as we've been in our, our 20s and, you know, you're going to college, you're doing this, you're doing that, and you, you want to live life. And so I, I try and provide the... Uh, so some reassurance that, that yes, you, you can lead a normal quality life. You can be a normal 20 something, 30, 30 something year, year old and, uh, and go through all those life experiences that, you know, you just, we, we can, we can manage this. So, yeah, um, that's so great. I love to hear that, yeah. you know, it's so interesting to hear how people get into the field right. that they get into and what leads yeah. them there. And, that yeah. personal experience piece is pretty, pretty yeah neat. so so that's that's my answer we we jokingly say in gi you know it's for the it's for the glamour uh of the, <laughs> of, the of the field but it but really i mean for me it was the is the patient patient side of it in addition to the glamour of it so right yeah yeah I love and that. you now get to take photos of the insides of people's guts <laughs> i yeah, yeah. I, I get to use my photography skills daily <laughs> yes 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 that's great yeah so inflammatory bowel disease, you kind of touched on IBD or inflammatory bowel disease when you were chatting about that. And what other conditions are you seeing primarily as a GI provider? Sure. So we, we I enjoy that we get to see a really wide variety of, of conditions in GI. Really, it's from the, the entrance to the exit of the of the GI tract. Uh, so we're like in the esophagus, say we're seeing patients with swallowing uh, difficulties um, and Barrett's esophagus and uh, I mean, stomach conditions, small intestine, large intestine, as well as uh, liver, pancreas. Um, and, and so uh, it's really a, a nice variety. Um, and that, I mean, these are commonly conditions that, I mean, are affecting people's quality of lives. They're coming in, say, with uh, with heartburn, reflux, or, and, you know, you, there's different medications you can do for that. And um, irritable bowel syndrome is quite uh, quite common. Inflammatory bowel disease is becoming uh, more, more common. And, uh, you know, we're helping people, say, with, uh, say, fatty liver disease is another uh, common condition that, that we see. So we're trying to, that has many overlaps, say, with um, diabetes and high blood pressure and being overweight. And so we're trying to um, help help patients through through that and as well as their uh other specialists who they're seeing in, in, in their in their primary care doc. So um, yeah, it's a it's it's a fun it's a fun field, and a lot of times you never know what you're what you're going to get, and that's uh, I mean I something that I really really enjoy. So. Yeah, that's great. So something I'm particularly interested in in the wellness field too is what do you think is sort of driving that increase in prevalence of some of these GI conditions in mm. the general public? I I think that as as many 
Americans become more more overweight. I mean that that predisposes us to getting like conditions like heartburn and reflux and the and uh, and fatty fatty liver. And so I think that is uh, in in part because of it. And then also with the with the pandemic, uh, I think that all of us are under increased uh, stressors and and we're dealing just with more day to day stress in our in our lives. And so that's making the uh, I mean conditions like irritable bowel syndrome more more prevalent and and driving uh that as far as i, I know i've i've noticed it uh, with my with my own gut as far as not i mean having inflammatory bowel disease but also uh having you know like i have a stress i have a, a test coming up that hey you know that i'm feeling a little uh more more symptoms that way so i think those are partly why we're seeing more uh conditions and then i'd say also our primarily western diet of say you know things like like fast food and and uh in our idaho potatoes are, <laughs> um are also uh, i think we're still figuring out exactly how they're affecting our our gut health our microbiome and um and uh, so i think that's a the, the, the way in which I, I view it. Yeah, for sure. You know, and we just are hearing so much nowadays about like that gut microbiome, all the bacteria that are living mm. in your gut and what that means for like your digestive health as well as just your entire body health. And I guess I'd be interested to hear from you. What are your general recommendations for people in terms of their gut health? Like, what yeah. can they do to keep their gut as healthy as possible? Sure. Yeah. the The gut bi- microbiome is obviously a, an area of, of active research, both for, I mean, GI, but also uh, diabetes over. Uh, the obesity epidemic, as well as many, many other uh, areas. And, and I think as far as our, our general uh, GI health um, and, and kind of diet things that we can that we can do for that is the, the primary diet that I would recommend for um, for for, for patients is uh, the, the Mediterranean diet, which is a diet that's uh, lower in processed foods, lower in lean meats, higher in fresh fruits and, and vegetables. And usually this has a, an overlap with uh, patients, say cardiovascular health that it, it overlaps with a, I mean, a generally healthy diet and, and can also help people lose, lose weight. I uh, recommend it to, to patients who are coming to me, say with, with fatty liver disease, as well as there's data for it in uh, inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel uh, syndrome. Um, and then I, I think something that also comes up with the, the microbiome is the question of, should we use probiotics? Like, should I, should I eat yogurt? Should I take a, a probiotic supplement? And, and the answer, the short answer is if you're having other GI symptoms, like, like bloating, cramping, and you're taking a, a probiotic, Honestly, the the patients who I see come to me with those, I usually actually stop the probiotic because a lot of the times it's actually making it worse or contributing to it. Um, and uh, and the they're really we don't know exactly what is in the the probiotics. They're not being for the most part being regulated by the FDA. Are they still having active ingredients? Are they refrigerated? How many colony forming units of X bacteria are are in them? We don't always know. And so I, I think that a lot of the times that uh, patients think that they're providing a benefit, but a lot, but many of these probiotics are just being digested by the stomach and then really you're not getting any sort of benefit from them uh, whatsoever. That being said, I, I do eat a yogurt every, every morning with granola and <laughs> And, uh, and try and follow a, a little more higher fiber diet, which is uh, something that has been shown to provide uh, good gut gut health, and again goes along with 
uh, your general kind of cardiovascular diet, just trying to incorporate more things like like granola or fiber one or Benefiber, things like that are, are good for regular uh, GI health. Yeah, and I think I've heard too, a lot of, you know, fruits and vegetables and just minimally processed foods are going mm. to feed a lot of the good bacteria in your correct, gut too, correct. right? So yep. it's, it's sort of Maybe you're not directly eating the bacteria in a probiotic, mm. but you're feeding the correct bacteria. Is that correct? I, yeah, that's that's my understanding of it as as, as well. And uh, less uh, processed processed foods and less other kind of additives and things are definitely definitely better for your GI health. And I think that we've all, I mean, say had some sort of kind of a gastroenteritis or a viral viral syndrome, and uh, felt like our, our gut was off. And then when you want to replenish it and try and put good things back back in. And so I, I think the way in which to do that is probably more of kind of a yogurt uh, sort of sort of based um, rather than trying to do probiotics. The, the the one probiotic that does have some data is uh, is Culturel, mm-hmm. um, and and that's one that if patients want to try something that, that that's one that I recommend, and is generally more affordable, and you can get it on on Amazon. But there's many. I mean, pe- people come to me with all sorts of uh, probiotics that they that they've tried, and I. I look at it and I say, you know, I, I don't exactly know what's what's it's in this. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. And sometimes but they're expensive. So very, very much so. Yeah. Who knows what? It, it, exactly, and that's that's the other thing is you know people come to me try and say over the counters herbals supplements and uh, and and but I usually ask, hey, exactly what? How is this helping you? How do you feel the benefit of it of it is? And if they can tell you, great. But if if not, sometimes they say, well, you know, I've tried this for a few months and there's. I haven't noticed anything. I said, well, you know, maybe maybe it's time to to stop it. Um, so right. then, yeah, that definitely makes sense. I think it's that also speaks to your point too about how so many people are suffering from gastrointestinal problems. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. just the litany of options available oh goodness, for yeah. either herbal things or mm. supplements or things like that that people are trying for various ailments all within their gut. <laughs> and, and there's many things over the over the counter obviously like your your Pepsid, Prilosec, those those kind of medications for stomach acid, there's stool softeners, antidiarrheals and and really a lot of what we give to patients or recommend is over the counter but you have to know how to to use them and and in in how long and um, so uh, but that that's the, the the good and the bad of GI is that usually patients have, have tried XYZ before they before they come to you. So yeah, and I'm about to touch on a touchy subject because mm-hmm. I personally know most people on a dinner party list, if I were to invite people, have some sort of food allergy. Yes, yes. <laughs> or they yeah. have something they're avoiding, or they're right. you know this person isn't eating gluten, or this one's not doing dairy, and yep. and not in. Anyway, am I trying to discredit people's personal experiences mm-hmm. or their symptoms? But I, I am curious about what the evidence is about these food allergies or these intolerances that people are seeming to have more and more of. Yeah, we I mean, you're definitely right that, you know, before you invite somebody over, you have to you have to ask that that, that question. And 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 some people who come to, to see me, some people do feel better on a on a, on a dairy free diet. I mean, Honestly, I mean, humans are are the the rare animal that you know some of us, but not all of us, can tolerate milk into into adulthood. But uh, the eating dairy generally is is something that's going to be undigested or, or minimally digested by your GI tract. And there's a lactose intolerance, and it is a is a whole wide spectrum of you know I can I can tolerate say maybe yogurt and cheese, but not not milk or not ice cream, and vice versa. And so, I would encourage people to 
for lack of a better word, just do a trial and error with your own gut as far as seeing what you do and don't tolerate. And this should be kind of generalities, not, you know, I can only do X brand of yogurt and not this other type of uh, type of yogurt and, and trying to avoid uh, being becoming so restrictive. You know, I, I, I developed a, uh, a sensitivity or a reaction one time with, say, a, a glass of milk and, oh, I can't do any any type of, of milk that, no, it's probably worth retrialing that in the, in the future. Um, as far as the, the allergy testing, I see that People come to me either with, say, blood tests or, or skin testing for various food allergies, and they think that, uh, that that's kind of the, the be-all, end-all as far as, oh, I can never have these foods ever again. And they're the cause of all my GI symptoms. And really, that's that's not the case. The the allergy that they're, or the specifically the, the antigen that they're testing for, either in the blood and the skin, doesn't always cross over to the gut. It's it's not that, um, and, and there's different different what are called antigens or kind of proteins in the in the blood that then um, present to other. Um, other uh, receptors and the and and so those don't always cross over to the gut. So my advice is that you do kind of your own testing at at, at home. I mean, you, maybe when you don't have something going on the following day, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and um, and and you try it for for yourself because I I think that the the danger is that you become so restrictive that you're not getting really any sort of nutrients in your in your body, and then you actually wind up with other. Uh, disorders or deficiencies um, or vitamin deficiencies in your um, from not eating a whole laundry list of, of, of foods and so I, I think that those those testings are specifically the, the the skin and the blood testing have maybe some role for other specialists but not so much for uh, gastroenterologists. Oh, that's so. interesting. Yeah, I know that I cannot drink a glass of milk without my stomach being upset. Sure, but sure. I can Same. eat as much ice cream hmm. as I possibly <laughs> convenient. want. Convenient. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It's yeah. very convenient. Yeah, and and, and, and and like I said, that that kind of the lactose intolerance is 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 a spectrum, and and really it's. It, it's something I view it as. I mean, I have it myself, and I view it like, oh, you know, the the people who can tolerate lactose or the they have a mutation, and that, that's from I think actually during the plague um, is when that oh. kind of started to become a little more common. Is that those those people who were able to to tolerate cow's milk um, then had a quote a kind of a survival benefit that this now kind of carried over to to our uh, our our Western world. And I I am somebody who who doesn't uh, have, have that, uh, I guess, more that, that uh, You're not as highly evolved. It's okay. I right. guess, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hence why I went into, into, into gastroenterology as opposed to, say, something like plastic surgery. Right. So. right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Just don't take my brie cheese away. Anything oh, else? Yeah, but, that's good. Uh, brie. It, it's all, brie. Yeah, it's all a risk benefit at the, at the end of the day. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because it's it's hard even with, you know, some people say, like, oh, I can't have strawberries or I can't, you know, there's very specific things I hear from people, too. And mm -hmm. I personally would never know because I never have a single food in isolation. I never am just oh. eating Correct. a strawberry. Correct. I'm never yeah. just eating, you know, this. Yeah. It's like always something combined and mixed up. And anyway, it's my own personal experience. Yeah. And that's the difficulty with it. And, you know, I encourage people to keep a try and keep a, a food diary. There's a lot of different apps that, 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 that oh. you can that you can get. Um, and then if specifically one that has some uh, good data, if you have say irritable bowel syndrome is called the uh, Monash University app that's available both for iPhones and, and Android. And that can really work 
work with you as far as the the, the details of all these all these foods and um, and they idea. and they have some good resources on their um, on their website. There's uh, there's dietitians who are trained specifically in the Monash University uh, for this is specifically more for a diet called the low FODMAP diet, which uh. is a diet that is uh, generally prescribed or recommended to patients with irritable bowel syndrome and outlines foods that are more likely and less likely to cause symptoms like abdominal pain, bloating, diarrhea, um, and uh, and so that's something I, I would encourage people to to look into. And then if they want to take a, a further deep dive into it, it's that 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 app. Um, that's a great idea. So. I have I got diagnosed with GERD. Sure. Forget what it stands for. Want to or tell us? Gastroesophageal reflux disease, or you have, usually people come in with heartburn, reflux, and right. so yeah. Right. So I got diagnosed with that like as a teenager. I had to have an endoscopy hmm. and all of that situation, and I've kind of figured out like what I can eat that makes it, you know, kind of spike up again, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. you know whatnot. But it'd be like I'll have stretches where I'm great and mm-hmm. I'm not taking any anything for it and I'm feeling great and then it'll come up and I think having the app to be able to just kind of like maybe see what it is that I'm eating or if I'm stressed because I hold all my stress in my stomach Mm. all of it so you know just trying to evaluate what's going on and track it so that you're more aware and then can you know yeah and and if you could just keep mentally track of it or uh, on a note or other things like you don't have to use an app but there but there are like I think my fitness pal has something uh, other other things as as, as well but it's just to kind of keep some mental notes as you as you as you go along and uh, we have apps for everything obviously Yes, we do. (laughs) There's an app to organize your apps now, and I'm not joking. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Okay, so we've talked about the gut microbiome, bacteria in the gut, your gut health, what to avoid, processed foods, what to eat more of, foods in the Mediterranean diet. Yes. Let's talk about colon cancer. Sure. Sure. Um, I'm always really interested in this because I know the guidelines in terms of screening and all that have changed a lot in the last couple of years. so my background as a primary care provider, I'm always sort of interested sure. to know what to recommend to patients and whatnot, too. So first, I'd love for you to just talk about why is it important to screen for colon cancer? Sure. Yeah. So, so March was uh, colorectal cancer awareness months. So we're coming fresh off uh, off of March. And as far as colon cancer goes, it's the it's the third most common cancer in the in the U.S. and actually second most common cause of, of death among among cancer. So it's it's quite quite mm-hmm. common and uh, and something that is easily uh, screened for and uh, prevented. And the the, the ways um, and, and now the. Uh, most recent, the American College of Gastroenterology, as well as the American Cancer Society, and then the uh, United States Preventive Service Task Force, all these have their own acronyms and <laughs> abbreviations, um, have, have now all uh, recommended that we start screening for colon cancer at age 45, as a, and it used to be at uh, age, age 50. And so as far as um, how you do that is uh, there's uh, stool tests that you can uh, that you can do either what's called a uh, fecal immunochemical test or a fit test, which is uh, every year the the Cologuard, which I'm sure people have seen advertisements for uh, on TV, which is every every three years or the the, the gold standard test, which is doing a, a colonoscopy. And there's obviously advantages and disadvantages to to each of these uh, methods. I, I mean, colonoscopy. Colonoscopy being the, the the gold standard, um, 
and something that I do all day, every day as a, as a gastroenterologist <laughs> is, um, obviously you have to do the, the, the bowel prep the, the, the day, the day before, which having now eight colonoscopies myself for, oh, uh, for Crohn's oh. disease, um, I, I can attest that, you know, it is, it is not fun. However, it is very doable. And, uh, and I think that it is not as bad as, as people make it, uh, make, make it out to be. You have to be on say clear liquids the day before, do the bowel prep overnight. Then you go in, get a nice nap and then you're all done. Um, and uh, sounds easy. I well, I, I like to it like sounds to think. Sounds easy. <laughs> it, it, I, it, yeah, it, it, it is obviously easier uh, said said than done. But you for for patients who are at uh, what's called an average risk uh, screening, which is the vast majority of our population. And those are you know these are patients who do not have inflammatory bowel disease, family history of uh, colon cancer, or other inherited uh, GI cancer syndromes. That that's uh, these are kind of the the, the intervals for. Um, for those those patients, um, and and I think that I mean doing colonoscopy and, and seeing it performed on a on a routine daily basis is we're we're able to pick up um, say a patient's coming into us with symptoms we can take take biopsies we can remove polyps right right then and there during during the exam and get a direct endoscopic uh, or direct visualization um, of exactly what is going on or what isn't um, going going on and and then with these other the other tests the the stool based tests which are the again the the fit test and the in the Cologuard, uh they they're they're good um, and and it's and they're better than than nothing especially because we're we're seeing that really only about two thirds of the American population is actually being screened for for colon cancer so there's roughly a third of patients who we we haven't reached and mm-hmm. so if, if patients are willing to to do a stool test um, it's fine um, but they the a lot of the times these tests however oh they they're picking up what are called um, advanced adenomas or meaning that these are polyps that are generally um, about a centimeter in size or more okay. but with colon colonoscopy, we can really detect polyps down to say two to three millimeters oh, wow. um, in, in, in size and, 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 and remove <laughs> and them remove and, it, right. right at, at the time. And, and, and these tests are, are good as a, I'd say an initial kind of screening test, but oftentimes then, then you have to have a follow-up colonoscopy if it's positive. And sometimes these tests also have a false positive um, or false negative rate, meaning that they either say if it's false positive, they say it's positive, but it's actually negative. Um, or if it's false negative, meaning that they, they actually do have, it says it's negative, but there actually is, say, a polyp or something else going on in someone's colon. Um, and and so and in addition, the, the other flip side of it is, is having submitted stool tests myself for my own disease that it's not the most pleasant experience to, to go home and, and, and yeah. do a, a stool collection kit. And, and a lot of the times I have patients who tell me, you know, I'd actually rather just have a colonoscopy than right. submit a stool test. And, and, and granted, the, the colonoscopy, I mean, you're, you're taking a day off of work, you're getting sedation, but you're doing that, say, once every on average, once every 10 years compared to once every one to three years to submit the stool test. So I think that, I mean, these other tests are, are out there, but I, I, at the end of the day, I still think that really colonoscopy is a gold standard for, for a reason. So Yeah. And I, I really want to touch back on a couple of things you sure. said there, because there was a lot to unpack in terms of the screening and you brought up so many good points. One of which is 
if you have an abnormal fit test or colaguard, you mm-hmm. do need to go through with that colonoscopy. You, you do. And actually, start. it used to be that insurers would not pay for that or, or that, 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 that follow-up colonoscopy. Right. But actually, starting in May, after the uh, advocacy of the American College of Gastroenterology and American GI uh, Association, um, the insurers now do pay for that oh, follow-up yeah, colonoscopy. That was, right. So that's a change that's going to be happening really now in a, a few weeks. Um, okay, that that's they, good to know. Yeah, because that was, I mean, I would say almost the, the biggest downside to those uh, stool-based tests in the in the past. But now um, we've been able to, the GI societies have been able to to change that on a, um, on a, on a government or kind of systems level. Um, so that's a very, I would say, a very positive change for, for patients if they elect to go the, the, the stool-based test and they don't wind up with a more of an out-of-pocket kind of non-screening or non-preventive exam, uh, which they had in the in the past. Right. So. And and I love how you said so many people are not getting screened. So if the option yeah. is stool test or nothing, do the stool test. Mm-hmm. But then the other piece is I have seen so many patients who have had false positive colaguard tests mm-hmm. and have gone on to have a normal colonoscopy that they then spent four to six weeks sometimes sort of waiting, waiting. biting it, their nails, wondering yep. what's going to happen. And yep. that anxiety there, whereas, you know, they maybe could have eliminated that anxiety by getting the colonoscopy in the first place, I guess. But. I, I 100% agree. I, I see many patients who come to me thinking, you know, my, my colaguard is positive. I think that I have colon cancer or that's what I've been told or that's what I've read on the on the Internet. And there it's a lot of undue stress. And, and really the I mean, the colonoscopy is, is really nice because we can just go. I mean, somebody's coming to you. I mean, they're, they're not having symptoms and uh, you can go in, just remove polyps and, and and they just say, oh, great. It's all gone. I mean, and then I can go go home and go get something to go get something to eat afterwards. And and rather than the the anxiety of waiting and saying, well, is this test do I need to, to do I need to believe it or or not? Um, right. and, uh, and and so, and then you have to wait for that 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 colonoscopy. So um, right. and generally, patients are not having to wait a long time, right. but it's it's usually I mean can be weeks. So, right. Yeah. Yeah, and again, not to discourage anybody from going through with any screening that is available right. for them because they are validated, mm-hmm. recommended mm-hmm. modalities. Um, one other just question I have is when you're doing these screening colonoscopies, do you find a lot of other abnormalities as well often, or is it just occasionally, or uh, what kind of things would you maybe find? Usually in somebody who is not having having uh, symptoms and we're doing just a, a screening exam, we, we generally don't find other um other abnormalities, say things like like say a, like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, those are like inflammatory bowel disease. Usually, patients are having symptoms with mm-hmm. um, with those symptoms and or excuse me with with those diseases. Uh, and so, for the most part, we're we're not s- seeing a whole lot else. But we uh, other common findings that we see during uh, during colonoscopy are things like diverticulosis, right. uh, which are just uh, what I consider to be kind of potholes of the of the colon are kind of small benign little little outpouchings of the of the colon as well as we see can see hemorrhoids um, going back to diverticulosis it's something that we we see I mean I see I feel like every other colonoscopy mm-hmm. and people get concerned about their risk for diverticulitis which mm-hmm. is infection or inflammation of those uh, little outpouchings and generally only five percent of people or less end up with diverticulitis oh, or, or say potentially going to the needed to go to the emergency department with abdominal pain and maybe have uh, need to be treated with with antibiotics but that is a common uh, a common finding okay so, and then know. you know one other thing that that i i love to talk about too is just how screening so important, but then mm-hmm. 
also like say someone's had a colonoscopy a few years ago and mm-hmm. then they end up developing you know new onset diarrhea or they have blood in their stool or something like that that's still is that still something that they should bring up to their provider and consider definitely. additionally screening or diagnosis definitely yeah yeah and and i think that i mean you, you start by say with the diarrhea looking into say other other causes or screening for for infection or, or looking into celiac disease and other reasons for it but i mean then oftentimes we will say say repeat a, a colonoscopy to see if there's any other reason that the diarrhea um, could be there by taking uh, taking biopsies and seeing what's going on under the uh, directly under the, uh, the the microscope which is really I mean again the, the gold standard for it or, or rectal bleeding obviously we take seriously and and also take seriously not just in the what I consider to be the the screening population of the 45 to 75 it's really uh, patients of, of any age and say 20, 20 year olds and 30 year olds and whoever's really whoever's having it. We got to say, is there is there another reason, say, besides hemorrhoids that, that, it, that it could be? And um, because it, 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 we, we've lowered the colon cancer screening age at 45 for a reason, because we're seeing uh, colon cancer more frequently in younger, younger right. people, including, say, say, 30 year olds and even some late people in their late, late twenties. And we are still trying to figure out how we catch those people, but that's really uh, the, the main reason why we actually lowered that, that starting screening age. Yeah. So. I think that's population that, you know, I think anybody with changes in stool habits and things mm-hmm. and, or other GI complaints really need to have those addressed because, mm-hmm. you know, even if you're younger, you can still be subject to some of these unfortunate diseases. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. The, the, you know, we've all seen those, those rare patients, but they, they exist and we're, we're they doing stick what with we you. Can. They, they, they <laughs> do. And, the, and that, that early onset, uh, colon cancer is something that's an area of, of active research as far as what exactly is, is triggering this. Is it the say changes in microbiome? Is it other, other factors that the, that the patients have and so just know that that's an area of on ongoing um, but yeah and, and yeah. I guess my last question for you would be what are the the new hot areas of GI like what are we seeing coming down the pipeline is there anything sort <laughs> literally of <interesting>? <laughs> <laughs> I was not that's intended. good that's good I like it yeah. Yeah. I'm always here for good GI jokes so yeah so, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah so as far as new new things I guess in my my area of interest inflammatory bowel disease there's a lot of new uh, therapies that are being being developed and new medications in the in the pipeline and uh, a lot of the medications that we uh, that we use are uh, either IV infusion uh, based or, or injections or what are called subcutaneous injections either in your abdomen or your or your legs and that's not always a patient's first uh, preference for for taking a, a medication so there's a lot of uh, oral medications that are that are coming out that are helping to control uh, inflammatory bowel disease uh, for for liver disease thinking of kind of fatty liver another very common uh, diagnosis there's that's an area of, of, of active research and some uh, medications that are, are coming out that hopefully will uh, make more of a positive impact on that than just trying say lifestyle changes and uh, dietary changes uh, and then as far as endoscopy goes, I mean, we are doing more uh, through a, a scope than uh, has been done in the in the past as far as, you know, we're removing large polyps. And so patients don't have to go to go to surgery uh, unless they have a, a colon cancer or something more more worrisome. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I think those are the the, the areas that are, I, I would say, are really neat um, to, to see the, the active development right right now, at least from uh, from my perspective. 
perspective. Yeah, so. new ways to help your patients mm-hmm. and ways that mm-hmm. are more tolerable for them or can improve their quality of life has to be great. Yeah, yeah, it's it's exciting. I I, I love GI and it's it's neat to see all the these new these new develops uh, developments and uh, and be able to to help people out and to and if you can spare them a surgery, I mean that's that's really yes. really yeah yeah and also I mean hopefully you know we're coming especially with with IBD and that we're hopefully preventing surgery or complications right. of the of that disease that um, that people can really um, just like I said lead a, lead that normal quality of life that's mm-hmm. so great well that's great that was such a great conversation about yeah. what's coming Thank down you the both. pipe yeah. Yeah. yes <laughs> I'll use yeah. that one at least three more times right today. <laughs> Um, I'd love hearing about colon cancer screening recommendations, things we can do to keep our intestines healthy and and what we need to do in order to, to follow through with things if we're noticing changes so yeah yeah please talk to your either primary care doc or come come see us in clinic and we'd be we'd be happy to to, to help you out and um, um i i like to think that you know our our endoscopies are i view it as personally easier than going to the dentist uh or less less <laughs> yeah, painful like so um <laughs> and uh, no i mean really the, the start of the gi tract is is the mouth and i appreciate the, the the dentist doing what they do but i like to think that you know our we the the sedation that we give patients they get a, a great nap and uh <laughs> and and usually you know wake up feeling feeling refreshed and without abdominal pain and um yeah. so it's uh we we think that we try to provide the best experience we can and we have great great nurses and staff and um and they're they're really vested in in patients. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Again, that was Dr. Jeff Bank with the Digestive Health Clinic here in Boise, Idaho, answering some of our questions about our gut health and how to keep ourselves healthy. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. That was fun. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of St. Alphonsus Wellcast, brought to you by St. Alphonsus Corporate Health and Wellbeing and the St. Alphonsus Foundation. Always be sure to catch new episodes by subscribing to us through all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. We hope you'll tune in again. Until then, be well.